this afternoon. We're here last week. You know what we're doing. This morning we're going to listen in again to the final moments that Jesus had the evening that he was arrested and would subsequently be crucified on a cross. We're going to spend the next few weeks doing this. Last week we watched as Jesus humbly served the disciples by washing their feet, including, as we saw, washing the feet that belonged to the one who was betrayed, and, of course, the feet that belonged to the one who would deny him. Once Jesus resumed his place at the table, he announced that one of them was betrayed. And today, I mean, we've got the gift of hindsight, right? So today we know that that um, person was Judas. All of the disciples, they didn't have a clue yet who that would be. In fact, some of the other gospel writers write, hey, could it be me he's talking about? So when Judas left the dinner, the podium mic should be fine. The green one? Perfect. So when Judas leaves the room and leaves dinner before anyone else did, no one thought anything about it. They just assumed that Judas was doing what he had always done, taking care of the tales, or um, like he had done with all of the issues that he picked from up, been in charge of the money, maybe just taking care of things like that. Right? So Judas leaves. And once Judas left the room, Jesus then proceeded to teach the remaining disciples things that he would want them to know after he left them. His departure and the details around his departure was still unclear to all the disciples, but it, his departure, it would follow the event that would bring God, the Father, the most glory. And it would set the standard, the standard of sacrificial love for, for all Christians for the rest of humanity, including us. And so that's our background for the passage we're going to read right now. So if you'll join with me and follow along as I read John 13, starting with, verses 30, with verse 31. And I'll read through 35. This is the word of the Lord. When he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me. And just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have loved one for another. This is the word of the Lord. I'd like to begin walking through this passage that I've divided simply into three parts, and you'll see as we walk through it just how the obvious designation of this passage is, but I want to begin with this sentence and beginning. The glory of God. The glory of God was being manifested in Jesus. The glory of 
God was being manifested in Jesus again. Judas has left the room, and then Jesus said, Now, now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. The word glorify means to praise, to honor. So Jesus is telling his disciples that God has made a full display of his glory in the person of Jesus' language here is the Son of Man. God glorifies himself by manifesting, putting on display, by manifesting all of his goodness. When Jesus, and here's when it happened, when Jesus took on flesh and dwelt among us, demonstrating his own grace, his own mercy, his own justice, his own love through the sacrifice of his son. <coughs> interesting word here, however, in this verse, it's interesting to me, you might find it interesting as well, that, that Jesus doesn't wait until after his resurrection to declare that now, now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. And he'll take a similar approach uh, when he makes uh, a similar statement in his high priestly prayer in John chapter 17, verses 4 and 5 that he does in this verse. Turn over to John 17, just a couple chapters over. We'll, we'll cover this in more detail in the coming weeks, but let me just allude to it verses 4 and 5. Listen to what Jesus says in his prayer to the Father. Remember, he's not yet been arrested. He's still with his disciples. Uh, but this is all the same. He, he says, I glorified you on earth. Listen to the tense here. Having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Now in both his declaration to his disciples, now the Son of Man is glorified, now that the Father is glorified in me, and in his prayer, John chapter 17, Jesus views his death as virtually accomplished. He knew about his death. He knew about his passion. That the cost that was about to be paid by him, there was no greater cost that could have been that could have been made, nor could any cost glorify the Father in greater fashion than in him offering up his life as he was going to do. Pastor and author John Piper spoke to this in his book. It is, it is seeking to draw a connection to the high cost that was leveraged for our redemption. The blood of Jesus, his, his shame, his, his pain, his agony, and the high esteemed glory of the Father. So listen to this in that line. All of Jesus' work was designed to honor the worth of his Father's glory. 
all his pain and shame and humiliation and dishonor served to magnify the Father's glory because they showed how infinitely valuable God's glory is. That such a loss, Jesus' loss, should be suffered to demonstrate its worth. So when Jesus set his face toward Jerusalem, it was to accomplish what God had sent him to do. Endure the cross and despise the shame. And for him, Jesus, it would be joy. Hebrews 12, right? Because in it, in his passion, in his shame, in his pain that he took on for us, God would be glorified. People would be given a way to be saved from their sin. And he would be glorified, Jesus, as he resumed his place at the right hand of God. That Jesus could make this statement and it not be inaccurate even before it's happened. Now is the Son of Man glorified. And God is glorified in him. Why? Because nothing would keep Jesus from loving them. And by them, I'm thinking of the disciples and the concentric circles beyond that, the world that would believe on him by faith. Nothing would keep him from loving them to the end. Do you remember last week when we read the first words, John chapter 13, and it said, Oh, thanks. We moved you. John 13. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Let's look at the next thing that Jesus told his disciples in this, this dialogue he's having with them the night of his arrest, the night of his crucifixion. And I want you to listen for the slight variation that what he told the disciples contained from the similar thing that he had told the Jews, specifically the Pharisees of the Jews. Verse 33. And this, if you're a note taker, you might write this sentence down. The destination of people, and by that I mean their final destination, the destination of will be determined by faith. Listen to verse 33. He says, little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me. And just as I say to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. Think about how he begins those words. He says, little children, Jesus loved the men that he was in the room with. And he begins this next thought with this term of endearment that he only uses here, or at least this is the only place that John records Jesus using the term little children. It must have lodged in John's heart. 
Because he'll go on, and in his first letter, his first epistle, first John, he'll use this pet name, my dear children, as he leads out in first John chapter two there. He'll use it seven times in that one letter. And with these endearing words, Jesus begins to soften the blow of the news that followed. What was the news? The news was that he was not going to be with them much longer. And, and where he was going, they couldn't come. you got to understand that that news is, is to be received on two fronts. First, they, they couldn't go to the cross, as he would. And they could not go with him. And I, and I kind of just rejoice in the fact that there should be a word in this sentence. They couldn't go with him yet. When he would ascend to his father. The separation from the disciples was going to be temporary. But the unbelieving Jews that rejected Jesus, it would be eternal. And we can't miss this as it lands right here before us to consider. He's speaking of Jews, he's speaking of the Jewish Pharisees. No doubt it needs to be turned inward as well. The Jewish people had searched forever for the Messiah. And many still do. But, but whom they were seeking to find geographically can only be found spiritually. It can only be found by faith. So to the Pharisees who were seeking to arrest Jesus, you don't have to turn there, but over in John chapter 7, verse 33, this is what Jesus is referring to in that conversation. In that section, he's speaking to the Pharisees who were seeking to arrest him, and he said these words. Listen to this. I will be with you a little longer. Does this sound familiar? And then I'm going to him who sent me. You will seek me. To the Pharisees, he says, and will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. Their rejection of Jesus as the Son of God would lead to their missing out on so much. But it would lead to them missing out on their source of life. They'd miss out on God's provision that would be made for them to be in heaven with God. Through Christ forever. Jesus would spend the rest of that evening with his disciples. He would be arrested. He would be under a kind of false trial system which would lead to his crucifixion and death. And as you know, three days later, he would rise. He would spend days with his disciples and multitudes. And then he would ascend to his father. After his coming ascension, they would seek him, the Jews that Jesus is referring to, but they wouldn't find him because their search would be limited to the geography of earth. Before we move to verse 34 in our chapter to see the standard of love that is set by Jesus, let me offer some good news. I hope you receive this good news. If you're in here, you're you're not a Christ follower. You're just 
building up these things of Jesus, why he came, the standard of love he came to establish, and, and how his life served as the greatest establishment of God's glory forever. Hear this. Jesus did not come into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. The gift of life through Christ, the gift of life is for all who trust by faith in the finishing work of Jesus. Listen to what Jesus cried out. So he's, he's just had this interaction with the Pharisees, the Jews, in John chapter 7. They tried to arrest him. He's telling them, hey, where I'm going, you cannot come. And then he gets to this point, and in John chapter 7, verse 37 and 38, he cries out to the crowd. Remember we're here. He says this. On the last day of the faith, please, he says this. Stood up, cried out. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, Jesus says, this is for us who believe. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Our mind is supposed to go to the Old Testament. Our mind is supposed to go to the Exodus. Our mind is to think Moses. Because Jesus is what he's referring to. Jesus is the rock that Moses struck in the wilderness from which flowed life-giving water. Jesus is also pointing forward to something. Pointing back to that, Jesus was that rock. He's pointing forward to Pentecost when the promised Holy Spirit of Christ would come and he would be given to every genuine born-again believer producing his fruit in them. And among that fruit would be supernatural, sacrificial love as Jesus would display on the cross. A.W. Tozer wrote in his famous book, and I commend this book to you if you're a reader, a book's called The Knowledge of the Holy, and in it he writes this, The God who gave Paul to us will continue to give Paul through us as we come to him, to know him better. Gave his love to us through Jesus. And as we grow to know Christ and to love him more, he continues to give through us his love to others. I must say, before I move on, that genuine faith produces authenticated faith. I'm sorry, fruit. Genuine faith produces authenticated fruit. An authenticating fruit, such as sacrificial love, is not only confirming for your heart, believer, as he's producing that in you, but it's also a marker for others to witness. And I want us to consider the sacrificial love of Jesus before we close as it serves as, and here's our third and final point. Not that this has got to be brief, but there's something 
was this baptism. The standard of love has been set by Jesus. The standard of love has been set by Jesus. Notice verses 34 and 35. First, Jesus modeled sacrificial love. Here's the passage. He says, a new commandment I give to you. That you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also ought to love one another. Clearly, this is not a new commandment, right? Because since the day of Moses, God's people have been instructed to love one another and their neighbor. Read through the Old Testament. Read through the law. You come to Leviticus chapter 19. We read words like this. You shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the sons of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus will reiterate this in the Sermon on the Mount. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So this is a, a new commandment. However, there is something new that is being lived out before the disciples that was lived out for those of us who look back and read these scriptures and gaze upon Jesus and what he did and who he was. Sacrificial love is more believable when it is seen than when it is only commanded or talked about. It's no less important in the latter, but it certainly seems more believable when it is seen. So what is new here is not the commandment, but how Jesus would ultimately exemplify it and lived out this commandment by offering himself as a sacrifice for the world that would believe in him. That's what's new. To some extent, the disciples had already received and witnessed Jesus fleshing this out, right? This commandment out for them so that they would follow. We, we saw it last week for one. Right? We, could, we could throw a hundred things out here. Just the verses that precede this section we're looking at. Jesus loved the humble servant. As we saw last week, in response to the, the disciples' power grab regarding who would be the greatest in the kingdom, Jesus stepped away from his seat as the host of the dinner, he took off his outer robes, he strapped on a towel, and then he washed at the feet of the disciples. Left behind, sir. One of my favorite things to read, so this isn't just a book, but it's just genres of books outside of the scripture, would be biographies of men and women who have gone before us walking for the Lord. Elizabeth Elliott wrote an excellent biography about Amy Carmichael, which opened my eyes up to just how grateful I am that that lady gave her life in southern India for the gospel. Amy Carmichael had a lot of things that she wrote and certainly did there in India. Um, but she wrote a small book that I'm not certain you can just find it in a PDF form online, but it is, it is worth your time to read. But this small book is, is all it consists of is page after page of if-then statements. In fact, the name 
you the disciples. But that book and those statements helped her evaluate whether or not she was living out his commandments that Jesus had given and exemplified in new form. And as she put it, she referred to that sacrificial love of Jesus and called it Calvary love. So, a couple of those statements I'll share now, and then I'll share a few more, just in a few minutes, as it relates to Jesus loving by humbly serving. But she wrote this in one of those statements. Listen to this. Bless her heart. If I cannot, in honest happiness, take the second place or the 20th, she says, then I know nothing. Jesus was exemplifying that very thing. The king of kings, disrobing from his royalty, putting on a towel, and stooping down to wash the feet of the disciples. Notice another one she writes, and wrote, I should say. She said, in the ultimate, the hardest cannot be asked of me. If my fellows, in other words, my fellow believers, if my fellows hesitate to ask it, and then turn to someone else, then I know that Jesus loved by humbly serving. And his example is to be our practice. Let me show you the second way to be loved. And like I said, I could have listed a lot, but the second thing that popped out for me was this throughout his life. And as a recipient, Jesus loved those who could not reciprocate. Jesus had already taught, listen, if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Do not even the tax gatherers do the same? And if I'm honest, maybe I'm addressing this more for my own sake. Than I am for yours. I know me. I know that in my flesh, my, my worldly motivation sometimes can be to love those that can provide something satisfying in return or, or fulfill a perceived need in me or, or, or produce something in that form or fashion, right? But Jesus' Calvary love, his motivation was the glory of God. And his motivation was to benefit the ones that he loved, despite the fact that they could offer him nothing in return. Take a snapshot of Jesus looking out over Jerusalem when he's making his final trek and he's uh, entering into that triumphal entry. And he looks out of Jerusalem and his heart is broken and he's grieved and he's filled with compassion because he sees a people that are sheep without a shepherd. Brothers and sisters, thanks be to God that Jesus loved us in spite of us. As a recipient of such Calvary love, may we go out of our way to offer it freely to one another. Third and final thing I'd like to point out in this, and we've already hit it. In the first verse of John chapter 13, 
Jesus loved to be praised. Paul would later write in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 and 4, a summary of the gospel. He would summarize the gospel with these words. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Think about that night. Jesus is in a room. He's just had a meal with them. He's just washed their feet. Judas has just left to start the process of what he's about to do to betray Jesus. And Jesus is looking in the face of his little children and sharing these teaching moments with them. Soon, his disciples would know what we know now. That Jesus loved them so much that he would follow through with the mission that he came to earth to perform. Jesus came to pay for the sin of others. And this would cost him his very life. Next thing for your outline underneath that third point is kind of the crux of the matter and the basis for the title. Is this Christians model authentic faith? Notice what this final verse says. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. <coughs> A buddy of mine and I were driving to Louisville one time, and there's not being one. We're getting better with this. Not being one who has a filter that keeps words in that I, I just want to, uh, it looks like a conversation waiting to happen. This, this dude is at the gas pump um, at the little gas station we stopped in there, and he had a word that was tattooed on his neck, and I couldn't read it. I, I just, I'm looking, I'm looking, I'm looking. I knew it was there for a reason, but I, I, didn't, I didn't know what Nevia meant. I was certain that's how it was pronounced. Something inside me, so I went up to this guy. He could have beat me up if he wanted to. But hey, bro. Some people get this as an attempt to permanently wear a mark on their body. 
copies that, that would identify them or the group that may that may help them associate with the school they love or 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 a verse that means a lot to them or, or any number of things that they that they feel like kind of represents them, right? And I can't help but notice that Jesus is saying something here and telling his disciples that as they express Calvary love to one another, it too will be an identifying mark for others to see that no old house sleeve can conceal. It makes me wonder. see something that is so unique they would want to ask the question, hey bro, what is this that causes you to be marked in such a fashion? Wouldn't it be a glaring uniqueness from us whereby people outside of us would see the strange way that we love each other? Expressing this Calvary love expressing this sacrificial love would be a marker. So I don't want to suggest specific ways that we can love one another in a manner that marks us as disciples to people outside the church. I don't want to give us a list of things we can do, right? But I do want to share a couple more if-then statements from Henry Carmichael and confess that they reveal things in my heart that cannot continue to be prevalent if I'm going to love as Jesus loved. And, and they also show me that my idea of loving one another may only be surface at best. Let me share some of these things with you. Just four or five in this list. She writes, if I can enjoy a joke at the expense of another, if I can in any way slight another in conversation or even in thought, then I know nothing of Calvary love. Seven. If the praise of man elates me and his blame depresses me, if I cannot rest under misunderstanding without defending myself, if I love to be loved more than to love, to be served more than to serve, then I know nothing of Calvary love. If I refuse to allow one who is dear to me to suffer for the sake of if I do not see such suffering as the greatest honor that can be offered to any follower of the crucified, then I know nothing of Calvary. I share one more. If I covet any place on earth but the dust, at the foot of the cross. Then I know nothing. 
only bear the marks of Calvary life. The authenticating mark of being a disciple of Jesus. We've received him as our Lord and our Savior. When we receive the forgiveness of Christ and the cleansing of Christ, he exchanges our old nature for his. As Christ himself comes in and lives inside of us, and as he abides in us, a great exchange has taken place. This is the gospel. And as we abide in him, we will bear much fruit. Apart from him, we won't. What is it that marks you? Calvary love will only mark you to others as you see the one who is your provider, Jesus, as the highest Christ pearl, the water that satisfies, and the prize that is worthy. sacrificial love of Jesus. Thank you for the exemplifying love of Jesus. Thank you that we don't have to muster Calvary love on our own merits and in our own effort. But that you who have given us all things continue to do all things through us. Jesus, we love you. We ask that our lives would not only be leverage for the sake of your great name, but that we would love each other in the manner that you have loved us. Won't you teach us what that Mark us with your love for the sake of your great name. I pray this.